This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst and author James Hollis, who's returned to the podcast to discuss his new book, Living an Examined Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey, a 21-step plan for addressing the unfinished business of your life. He received a doctorate in literature from the prestigious Drew University, located in the New York metropolitan area, and taught humanities for 26 years in various colleges and universities. In 1977, he went to Zurich, Switzerland, to enter the training program at the C.G. Jung Institute, where he earned a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst. Dr. Hollis is presently in private practice in Washington, D.C. He served as executive director of the C.G. Jung Educational Center of Houston for many years and is now the executive director of the Jung Society of Washington. He is a retired senior training analyst for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, was co-founder and first director of training of the Philadelphia Jung Institute, and is vice president emeritus of the Philemon Foundation, a group of scholars, board members, and donors who share the mandate to prepare the unpublished works of C.G. Jung. Dr. Hollis is the author of 14 books and over 50 articles, and has mentored Jung societies on four continents for nearly 40 years. This interview is being recorded on March 21st, 2018, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. Hollis. Hello, Laura. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for returning. I really appreciate your time. The new book, you say it contains the summation of decades of working with students, clients, analysands, and myself in the hope that it will be helpful to each reader in the conduct of his or her life and bring a greater sense of purpose and personal permission to be, in the end, who he or she is. Mm-hmm. Well, it's true. And um, in a certain way, it's meant to be summarizing the threads of uh, many years of practice and uh, many books in what are the essential issues that come up for people, whether they're conscious of those issues at work or not. So, you know, our life is working out whether we pay attention or not. Mm-hmm. And when we uh, get off track, of course, it pathologizes and produces symptoms, and, and we may run from the symptoms or try to med- medicate them away. And sometimes, once in a while, we're wise enough to say, I wonder why they've come, and <laughs> what what is my own psyche saying to me about how my life is unfolding? And so... What I wanted to do was try to uh, pull up out of our behavioral sort of complexities and also out of the unconscious uh, a more sort of conscious way of looking at the tasks we all have to face in the second half of life. And the second half is defined, again, not so much chronologically as it is those times when we really begin to ask ourselves, you know, who am I apart from the history that I've experienced? Who am I apart from my roles, which may be good or bad roles? Uh, who, are, who am I apart from what happened to me? And why am I here, really? And to sort of come back to the basic questions that the child asked, but get uh, lost in our thousand adaptations that life demands of us, and to sort of recover a primal sense of um, wonder, of mystery, uh, perhaps anxiety as well, but uh, to to begin to move toward a, a greater sort of ownership of our own lives and our own journeys. Yeah. And then you add to that, which is 
really what drew me to your work when I first discovered it. You say, all of that sounds so simple, but in fact, it is very difficult. And the fact that you often and consistently acknowledge how difficult this work is, has made it bearable for me and doable for me. Well, you know, we'd all like to think that the solutions to our life problems are are easily attained and by simply addressing them and and hitting the right button, why they go away. The the truth is the really important issues of our life will probably persist throughout our journey. Mm -hmm. The real question, though, is do we own them and deal with them or do they own us and deal with us? And the, the question always is, you know, what, what are the adaptations we had to make and what is the price of those adaptations? For example, we, we all develop patterns of avoidance. Okay, well, over several years, how do those avoidances begin to pile up as consequences? We, we, we may adopt strategies of compliance in order to sort of get along, we go along. All right, over time, how do those patterns of compliance begin to have costly consequences? And it's in those moments that one begins to realize, you know, my my adaptations, my strategies, my sort of behavioral patterns are, are now my chief problem. I think the most important thing I learned during my six years in, in Zurich, and it was really very surprising in a way, was not that there's a secret out there that you're supposed to figure out and then all will be well, but rather what you have become is now your chief obstacle. In other words, I've become a set of operational strategies. And these strategies were basically generated in response to the circumstances that I encountered as a child, overwhelmed, dependent, and vulnerable, and essentially powerless. I had to learn to sort of figure it out, get along, adapt, fit in, be acceptable. And, and those patterns in time become that which we identify as who we are. And so it's, it's paradoxical in the sense that these deep reflexive patterns stay with us throughout the, the journey. And people may, you know, berate themselves and think, oh, I should well be beyond that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we all have areas of, of dependency or we have areas where an old fear reaches up and grabs us and by the throat and we're suddenly not able to respond as we want to respond. And, you know, as, as Jung pointed out, we, we don't solve these, but he said we can outgrow them. That's why patience and repetition become so critical in in this work. Yeah. So the subtitle of the book is Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey. What's the difference between the two halves? Sure. Well, the the, the work is going on in the first half, whether we address it or not. But our, our primary task in the first half of life is what you might call a a social task. In other words, I have to deal with the society into which I'm born, my family of origin. I learn to mediate my my relationships, my experiences in my relatively powerless and unknowing way with my parents and then with playmates and then school teachers and progressively widening circles of engagements with people. And and in a, in a way, what I'm needing to do, and we all have to do it sooner or later, is develop enough ego strength to separate from those overt dependencies on family, for example, 
and step into the world and, and, and say, this is who I am, this is what I can do, trust me to carry through on what I say I'm going to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and we often leave our parental home thinking, well, I've left those people behind, and I know who I am, and I'm not going to make the same stupid mistakes my parents did, etc. But who knows what we're really swarming with inside? You know, mm-hmm. what kinds of reactions have we internalized? What models did we look? Where were our parents stuck? And so you know, whenever we have a large message, and the large message of family of origin is profound, our our chief tendency is to repeat it. So that's that's why these patterns ripple over from generation to generation. Or there's something in us that says, well, you know, this is not right, so let me run from it. So every time I'm saying, well, I'm not going to be like my mother, or I'm not going to repeat my father's life, we're, we're still being defined by our reaction to something else and someone else. Or we're out there trying to fix it in some way by trying to be busy through self-medication, through a life of distraction, or whatever form it takes. We're never absent those, those patterns. We're never absent those sort of search engines within us. We're never absent those adaptive energies. And because many of them, of course, begin to violate something deep within us, that's when the symptoms show up. And that's when the second half of, when we pay attention to those symptoms, mm-hmm. when we're forced to, that's when the second half of life begins. It's less a chronological moment than it is a psychological moment. Yeah. Because someone could not have, sort of have this personal encounter until they're facing a life-threatening illness, or they've, they've gone through the loss of a loved one, or loss of a relationship that was important for them, or they're downsized at work, or they're looking at retirement, or whatever the outer venue is, it's whenever a person is sort of stunned into asking, now, who, who am I really? And, and you begin to take stock of, of your life in, in a new way. And so the second half of life, in some way, is a psycho-spiritual agenda. The first half is about developing ego strength and be able to function in the world and become progressively uh, self-sufficient. And when we haven't done that, we still have unfinished business for the first half of life. But the second half of life is, okay, but, but what are my values, really? And why am I here? And what am I living in service to? And, and those, those touch a different place in our life because they touch on the meaning of our journey rather than simply the existence of it. Right. And you mentioned ego strength a couple of times. What exactly do you mean by that? And what happens if we don't develop that? Well, ego strength means the capacity, first of all, to absorb the shocks of the world and, and, and come back for more, to show up. You know, uh, It's very easy for a child to be frightened of something and run from it, and we understand that. And, and yet, if, if that pattern sooner or later is not outgrown, and sometimes it's naturally outgrown, or sometimes we're forced to deal with it, then one would be, be living a fugitive life. Uh, ego strength means I have to face my life, I have to deal with it, I have to show up. And of course, our natural developmental process gives us greater strength, greater resilience. And of course, one of the issues that shows up in people's therapy, for example, or in the conduct of their lives, is many times they're being ambushed by the sort of encounters they had early on in their experience when they were essentially powerless. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a place in each of us where there are archaic fears. 
And when those fears get dislodged and, and float to the surface, they, they can make us do terrible things. They can, they can cause us to act without integrity. They can cause us to run from things that we need to address. They can force us into power issues. Um, you know, we're, we're never absent the influence of the past. The difference is the adult usually uh, can struggle with them in a certain way that were perhaps not possible for the child. But even so, because they're archaic and they, they lie in our basement, so to speak, like sleeping alligators or something, uh, it, it still feels dangerous to confront them. Um, you know, primal fears. I, I was talking with someone yesterday who grew up in a very, very troubled family, and he, he learned basically, you know, keep your mouth shut, stay out of harm's way, and try to try to pacify everybody if possible. Well, now he's in a life situation and in a business situation where he's dealing with conflicting personalities and conflicting um, uh, economic circumstances. And he's going to have to make the toughest choices of his adult life. And and guess what? He's overwhelmed. He he said, I feel as if I'm in the belly of the whale. And he meant by that, I just feel engulfed by all of this anxiety. And and this is a, a person, you know, clearly chronologically in the second half of life, but it's sort of like his worst nightmare. Those adaptations that were once protective have now complexified the circumstances in, in which he has to make these choices. And there's only one way through it. And that way through it is not further procrastination, which is what he'd been doing more or less up to this point, is, is to frankly confront the fear, to go through it. Somebody is not going to be happy with his decisions because he's in a situation where he has to choose between people, between values, between principles. And somebody's not going to be happy with that. And, you know, when you're a child, you're, you're in real trouble when somebody is upset with you. And it's the legacy of that primal fear, and he had plenty of it, so I, I'm, nothing I'm saying is judgmental, quite the contrary. I'm very sympathetic to the magnitude of emotion that, that has been generated by this. But in, in a certain way, the dilemma has been intensified because the old fear was dictating procrastination in these decisions. Until now, their, their cost and their consequences are even greater. So it's, it, he's having a, a meeting point with his own soul on life's highway, a meeting that his uh, adaptive patterns were trying to keep him from having to uh, confront. But, um, you know, as, as, as Jung said once, what we deny inwardly will have a tendency to come to us in the outer world and we'll call it fate. That's a pretty scary thought when you think about it, you know, yeah. because you think, oh, what am I denying inwardly? And guess what? That's coming toward me like a truck on my side of the highway here. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to people whose response, going back to your acknowledgement that this work is very difficult to do, people who say, well, it doesn't have to be hard. It should be easy. And here are the simple steps to happiness in the second half of life. Well, you know, a, a an awful lot of um, religious sermons are, are promising that, and an awful lot of self-help books and bookstores are promising that. And ultimately, they let a person down, because um, we, we all have difficult times. We all have what I call swamp lands that we have to walk through. Mm -hmm. And if, if these, you know, five easy steps to this, 30 days to that, if it worked, listen, I'd be at the head of the line. Uh, what, what they ignore is the sort of recalcitrant power of these adaptive patterns or, or what Jung called these complexes. And we all have them because we have history. 
and and they never quite go away. The question is, what role are they playing? And if it was a simple matter to almost magically pronounce them and identify them and move on, then change and, and life would be simple. It's never that simple. That doesn't mean that ultimately we can't grow and, and enhance our lives. But I'll give you a kind of bottom line uh, approach to this. Ultimately, what people have to face in their life, and this is what, another reason why it's so difficult, what they have to face sooner or later is what they fear. And, the, and you know, that doesn't sell very well. You know, it doesn't, you, you hardly become a bestseller by saying, you know, I'm promising you encounters with your fear rather than here's how you avoid your fears, right? Yeah. Because those adaptations that we had, and we had to have them, it becomes what has been called the provisional self. In other words, that, that's, we, we become our adaptations. We become our protections, if you will such as avoidance, compliance, power complexes, et cetera, et cetera. But you see, ultimately, the behaviors that we're dealing with today are still operating to protect us from what we fear. And while that sounds reasonable, dealing with what we fear is, is where the challenge is. Otherwise, our life remains stuck, blocked, stymied, frustrated, and, you know, nothing moves forward. And ultimately... The issue is, can I face what I fear? And one of the things we have to remember, the person who who deals with it today, whatever it may be, um, will find, I have resources that I didn't have as a child. I have a measure of rationality. I have a range of options, of choices. I have comparative behaviors. Most of all, I have an emotional resilience the child did not have, an emotional resilience. When my client said, I feel like I'm in the belly of the whale, he was being swallowed by the magnitude of his choices and, and in, a, in a way by the sort of magnitude of uh, anxiety they all generated, which is as if he were back in childhood, and that part of us has never gone. And, and yet, he's a perfectly competent individual who is well-liked by people, and, and has, he knows exactly what is right for him to do on a personal and a business front. Because something in us always knows what's right for us. We always know at some level. We might be afraid of what we know, or we might have forgotten what we know, but we always know. And it's like if you do it with respect to other people at all times, I'm not talking about any sort of narcissism or mm-hmm. self-absorption, but if you do what's right for you, in the long run, it's going to be right for other people around you. Because otherwise, we're living in, in bad faith with each other unintentionally. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned choice, and I, I'd like to ask you about chapter one, which is called The Choice is Yours. But before that, I want to tell the listeners a little bit about how this book is different. You say this book contains 21 desiderata, the daily acknowledgement of which will change your life, make it more interesting, make it more nearly your own and make possible the recovery of your journey. And you recommend that the book not be read straight through, but a chapter a day. Because you say that only a disciplined reading allows the ideas, I love this, to percolate to our soul. To that end, the chapters have been kept short and to the point. Reading one chapter per day allows greater absorption than surfing through the whole permits. The desiderata means essentially the considerations. If we pause to consider these 21 issues as they function in our life, 
it brings about, A, a greater awareness, it brings about a greater accountability, and it brings about the possibility of greater ownership of our life. And so what I was trying to suggest is this is not a book you just sort of speed through. I really want to think about it as as a kind of almost meditation. Yes. Um, there, was no, there was a Greek word paideia that, that meant, it's translated as education, but it was more than that. It was sort of about how do you form character? You know, how do you form the sort of so-called virtuous person? Um, and and paideia meant training the person in in the values, not just how to be an, a functional adult, but what are the values that are are worth uh, sort of um, becoming in your life. So I think of it as a kind of paideia in the sense that it's meant to be a, a discipline. And the the chapters were kept deliberately short. In fact, we cut the manuscript significantly so that these would be more digestible bites and that they, they represent. In a sense, uh, that of which today, let me be particularly mindful, right? Mm, right. And, and you mentioned the first chapter. It, it seems so obvious. I almost felt embarrassed to, to say it, but to say the choice is yours because there is always that part of us. And I can remember this, thinking about this as a child, sort of like when I'm a child, I'm thinking, what is all this? What's going on? What's this life about? Yeah. Who am I? Who are you? What are we supposed to be doing here? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, well, somebody's going to take me aside and explain it at some point, you know. And I got all kinds of, uh, you know, examples to look at and try to make my own conclusions about it. But I am still waiting for someone to explain it all to me. And I've come to realize nobody really knows what's going on. And you, you really need to understand that I'm the one making choices. Because, as I pointed out in several books, the only person present in every scene of that long-running soap opera I call my life is me. Therefore, I am responsible, even though there are outer events and circumstances, I am responsible for how my life is shaping up. I'm responsible for the uh, consequences that keep flowing into the world through me. And I'm making these choices. And, And many times people think of their life as a kind of novel. It's like, well, when I get to the last page, I'll figure out what the novel was really about. Well, according to Hemingway, on the last page, the, the hero dies. So, you know, the last page is called Mortality. That I hate to ruin the novel for you, but that's where we're headed. So to realize, you know, I'm writing on blank pages on a daily basis, and I can't overemphasize the degree to which so much of the conduct of daily life is on automatic pilot stimulus response, these automatic responses. We're, we're creatures of habit, and there are good things about that because we learn you know, how to function in the world and we don't have to relearn basic things every day. On the other hand, when you begin to realize that the wiring in those reflexive responses often goes deeply into childhood and produces those patterns of power complexes or avoidance or complicity or whatever the form, then you begin to realize how much of daily life is really spent in service to an archaic past rather than to exercising profound choices today. Mm -hmm. I was just alluding to the person who at the moment feels overwhelmed by some very large decisions. And what what is difficult is not the decisions. He knows exactly what is the right thing for himself and for his company. It's, it's rather that somebody who's important in his environment is going to be very unhappy because they're competing, um, you know, agendas there. And, and that's the archaic fear. I mean, that takes them right back to the family of origin. And that was a time that was full of terror for this child. And you can see why. 
the magnitude of that emotion has produced, um, um, you know, procrastination up to this point, and and then the consequences begin to multiply. Mm-hmm. So I think we we all have those places, those wires that metaphorically reach into our psychic basement and, you know, activate our primal fears and that sort of thing. And the question is, what role are they playing in our life? And and to realize, I am making choices every day and producing my history and my consequences, not only on myself, but others around me. And and where are those choices really coming from? You know, when I do something, let's say act X or Y or Z, it's not so much the act, it's what is it in service to inside? What is it? What is it responding to? Perhaps unconsciously. And again, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So I don't know where it's coming from in me. I think it's who I am. I think it's what ought to be, but it's often, you know, the historically conditioned response. And that's why we become creatures of history. That's why we become trapped in our own adaptations. That's why we wind up in uh, self-sabotaging um, uh, postures in our life. And and it's why change is so difficult, because in a certain way, our adaptations, our behaviors, our evasions, or whatever, uh, helped us get this far, so it seems. And 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 now it's it's very hard to let go of them because they have a big hold on us. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about choice, I would like to ask you this because I I do hear from a lot of people and I do interact a lot with various groups and on social media, what would you say to the people that feel that they have no choice? I mean, so many people these days are feel oppressed by society, you know, by the government, their financial circumstances, the opportunities that they have or they don't have. And so they don't think they have a choice. Well, first of all, we all learn overlearned the message of childhood, which was factual. And, and, and the message of childhood, among other things, was the world's big and you're not. The world's, world's powerful and you're not. So how are you going to cope with that? And that's a question that confronts every child. That message overlearned creates in adults a sense of powerlessness. Yeah. Now, this is not to say there are not social factors that play a huge role in constricting and directing our lives. I mean, one of the most obvious would be, for example, uh, the, the ro- racism has defined people. Gender roles, definitions, expectations have played a devastating effect upon people. You know, when I was a child, for example, there was a, a very clear definition of what a man was and what a woman was and, and what you could do and what you couldn't do. And and those definitions were thought to have either come from God or from nature. And we now know they they were social constructions. Mm-hmm. And and we've been deconstructing them as a society for, for some decades now. And it brings an enormous amount of freedom to people, freedom to choose, but also a great deal of anxiety that comes along with those choices. And so, you know, all of these sort of fixed beliefs and structures historically have been part of the social fabric which define people's lives. You know, what economic class you were born into. I mean, the the last novel Thomas Hardy wrote was Jude the Obscure. 
and uh, in that was a very worthy young person by the name of Jude, and the problem is he was born into the working class, and even though he was highly intelligent, he couldn't go to the university, that was for the privileged, he couldn't marry the girl who whom he loved and who loved him, and, and so forth, and and it was really about the, the burden of of society that seemed insurmountable. And the public reaction was so harsh with um, Thomas Hardy that uh, he gave up writing novels and wrote poetry then the rest of his life because people saw him as, as trying to overthrow the class society, you know, and there are still structures in this world that, that have that kind of power in people's lives. So mm-hmm. I never want to ignore the constrictive nature of social and economic and religious and educational structures that are deep, deep sort of impositions upon the living soul of each person. And at the same time, you know, it's also clear there's a certain autonomy to that soul that wishes expression. And one has to fight, you know, one has to fight in order to to break out of that. And I've always, I've never said to a person, you can't do this. I'd, I'd rather say, here are the obstacles, but let's mm-hmm. try to find a way to for you to, to make this journey, you know, in the way you want to make it. In my own family of origin, they were essentially crushed by poverty, lack of education, cultural influences. My father was literally pulled out of eighth grade, and he wanted to be a physician, and he was sent to work in a factory, and he worked the, this is before labor laws. He worked the rest of his life in a factory. My mother came from an indigent family, and, and her dresses in school were made out of flower sacks. And she grew up with absolutely no sense of personal worth or confidence in anything. And that was the atmosphere I grew up in. Wow. And and their wise counsel to me was basically, let's let's all stay at home and we'll try to take care of each other and hope the storm passes over our head. And it was loving and protective and well-meaning, and it would have killed me if I'd stayed there. So when I could, I left. And it was not an easy departure. And I grieve to this day the unlived lives that they, they were trapped in. Why do you say and it would also, have killed you if you stayed there? Why do you say that? killed me of course and you know body might still be alive but the soul would be dead why no i'm I'm wondering why you say that well because in in a way what i'm calling the soul is is really a metaphor for the fact that we are the meaning seeking meaning creating animal in other words more people suffer um Mm. the constrictions of meaning in their life than any other single cause you know, we can have marital problems, we can have work problems, we can have all kinds of issues, a drug problem, whatever it may be. The real issue is something in me that wishes a more fulfilling life, psychologically speaking. I'm not talking in terms of your, your, your paycheck or something like that. I'm mm-hmm. talking about psychologically more fulfilling. Something in me is being violated, constricted, uh, kept from, from you know, pursuing what it really desires. That's why there, one of the chapters later in the book is, is about the necessity of seizing hold of permission to live one's journey. My parents didn't have permission, yeah. and frankly, I didn't either as a result of that. And it took me a number of years to figure out, you know, it's not that somebody can give it to you. You, you have to seize it. You have to somehow take hold of it and say, this is my life. It's the only one I get. You know, if I come back in another form, it might be a toadstool. I don't know what it is. This is the life I know. This is the one that has to make sense to me. And chapter six is called Step Out from Under the Parental Shade. And I was wondering what 
you would say to, again, I am surrounded by skeptics, what you would say to people who say, well, you know, you're being disrespectful of your parents by, by walking away from them and by separating from them and, you know, not like earlier you were talking about the patterns are of our family. And I'm thinking that the only way for me to work on my own stuff and, and get some distance from that was to physically geographically separate from them. And so what would you say to people that um, think that that's wrong? Well, first of all, the family has been one of the organs or structures of survival historically, and, and we have to recall that and appreciate that. And, and it was in some way a defense system. It was a way in which children uh, were protected and, and nurtured and so forth. But, you know, the changes in our society have been such that we now have a certain latitude and a certain capacity to live different journeys. And, and while that, at some level, threatens that structure, it's also true that it opens up for people uh, an unparalleled freedom historically. Because just as one could look at the past and say, well, there was a lot of order and structure and stability in that society, yeah, and at what price? Mm. You know, when you, you think someone's been married for 50 years, I don't automatically applaud. applaud. I ask myself, and, and has their soul stayed alive during that time? Mm. Is this a rich and developmental experience for them, or, or, or has it been something that's been a prison for them? You know, again, it's not what we do. It's, it's what it is in service inside of us. And, and then you begin to realize that a, a lot of the sort of a claim for those or, or the claim made by structures like family and parents uh, is, is often based on their unfinished business. In other words, uh, stepping out from under the parental shade means that many times people have to you know, confront the fact that maybe the parent is in some way trying to live their life through you or are expecting you to pick up some pieces uh, of their life that, such as their self-worth or self-esteem. And, esteem. and, and you know, that's, that's their business. I have a later chapter in the book called Free Your Children From You, because mm -hmm. I argue there, you know, look, if you've spent time trying to separate who you are, why would you burden your child with the same issues? Don't you, don't you want them to be free and not carry the burden of your unfinished life? because that's how they'll actually grow to love and respect you most and think of you as an ally, a comrade, and a friend in, in, in this journey. So it's just not about disrespecting parents. Quite the contrary. I just was confessing my, my grief for my parents' life, yeah. my great sympathy for them. I completely respect them. They sacrificed much for me. I have no question of that. And I grieve that I wasn't able to do more for them. That said, um, I, I, I would somehow be violating something very deep if I didn't live my separate journey. If I had stayed there, um, I'd be working in that factory, the same factory, you know, or, or I would be doing something like that. And, and you know, it, while that was perfectly honorable, it wasn't my calling. And my, my calling was, was as a person and as a, a person in the world. And it took me, you know, on different journeys. This work, as we said, is difficult, and the relationship with the parents is a huge part of our lives. How do we handle when they don't understand that we choose to do this work? 
you know, when they want us to stay in that pattern where you, you stay there and you take care of them. And I mean, even if it's just emotionally, you do everything with them, you do things the way they do things. And you're saying, well, I want to become my own person. And they don't like that. Well, look, this is how you become an adult yourself, is you have to make your own decisions. You can say, I love you, and I care for you, and I'll try to be helpful to you, but I, I have to live my own journey. Every child at some level has to say, I love you, but I also have to love my own journey. And, um, you know, someone said to me, I, I was in Houston for 17 years, and three and a half years ago I moved here to Washington because it was, a, you know, another challenge and, and mm-hmm. another, uh, you know, reason for, you know, sustaining a, a different kind of journey. And, and, and I have a daughter in, in Texas, and someone said, well, well, how could you move away from your daughter? It's like, well, because she's a perfectly functional adult, you know. Yeah. We have email, we have phones, we have airplanes. We see each other. We talk to each other every week. I mean, you know, she's a separate person. You know, she's a free woman. And, and um, you know, I tried to raise my children with that sense of permission to live their own journey. And it was one I didn't have. And it, and, and the constriction was not out of loving. It was, it was out of, I think, a cultural uh, limitation. And and so they couldn't even understand why I would live in the East Coast, for example, as opposed to staying in the Midwest with them. And nothing wrong with Midwest. It's just that, you know, I, it was not where my journey took me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in time they came to realize that. I, I think in time they came to appreciate that before they passed away. Um, I, I have a great relationship with uh, children because... You know, they see me as, as their supporter, their ally, not someone who's making demands on them. Yeah. You know, the, the the best way to have your children dislike you <laughs> is to try to tell them as adults what, what they ought to do, and especially the loyalty that they're supposed to owe you. And, and you know, that's, that's, that'll kill a relationship quicker than anything. Mm. You mentioned a few times um, to be asking yourself the question, what is this in service to? Would you say a little bit more about that? What are some examples? Sure. In other words, I can do, quote, a good thing, unquote, and it's not as seen by the world or as seen by my old tapes, my old reflexes. But it may not be a a good thing intrapsychically. It may be an old form of codependence. It may be an old form of compliance. It may be an old form of um, avoidance. You know, I gave you the example of the person in the business in a personal situation facing very hard choices. And, you know, his survival pattern in early life was, you know, compliance with people, trying to smooth the waters. Well, he's in a position now where you can't smooth the waters when you have opposing forces you have to contend with. So, you you see, the, the good behavior was in service to an old and unfortunately bad place, which was avoiding conflict because it's overwhelming. And it was overwhelming for the child. It's just now, as an adult, he has to face what he has to face. So, you know, to say that uh, what is it really in service to, you have to emphasize that word really because your first response is usually how the complex or the reflex mm-hmm. protects it. Well, I have to do this because of this, this, and this. You know, we always have a ready list of reasons to legitimize our our responses in life. Or, I did this because you did that, you see. 
And that's how these things get uh, reinforced and ratified and become even more deeply buried within us. Um, it's, it's because you have to ask the question, what is this really in service to? Is it avoidance? Is it compliance? Is it my power complex? Whatever. In other words, if, to follow up on what we were just talking about, if as a parent I have certain expectations of my children and I impose them on them, you know, I may think it's loving because I, after all, I, all I mean their well-being. Everything I do is for their well-being. Okay, it's what we tell ourselves. But does it really recognize? that they are an independent person who has to live uh, their own journey to find their own path? Or is it really something that is trying to keep them attached to us? Is it something that will force me to have to deal with my dependencies, uh, maybe upon them? And one of the things I've said to my children very clearly is, I don't want you taking care of me when I'm old. You know, I'll do that, right? If I can't do that, the state will do that. That's that's what I pay taxes for. That's uh, so the last thing I want to do is burn my children. And and it hasn't been an issue. <laughs> I'm still walking around. But the point is, I, I hope I'm of sufficiently sound mind to, to perpetuate that, because that, in my view, is how you love someone. You, 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 you free them and support their journey. So again, it's 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 not what I do, it's what is the deep motive inside of me. And that motive may literally be unconscious, but that's why we have to keep asking ourselves. And, and keep asking, for example, when we come across problematic patterns in our lives, where, where we often set out to do the right thing and it winds up blowing up in our face, and, and all of us have had that kind of experience, then you have to say, but, you know, that's how I rationalize that behavior, but how else might I see that? How, where else could that be coming from in me? And that could be an old, understandable peacemaking gesture that, that simply didn't deal with the value issues at, at stake there. Or it may be an old form of my avoidance or something like that. If, if in those moments, you see, this work is very humbling because rather than getting the sense of uh, inflation and, and self-aggrandizement, like, hey, I'm really in charge here, you realize... You know, I'm only from time to time in charge. Many times my life is, is run by these reflexive responses, and, and that's humbling. You know, in, in Jung's memoir, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he's, he talks about his midlife transit, and he says several times, and here was another thing I didn't know about myself, and it felt like a defeat. Well, why would it be a defeat? A defeat of what? It was a defeat for the ego's fantasy of its sovereignty. Mm. I'm in charge. I know enough to know enough. When in fact, we never know enough to know enough. And yet we have to act on a daily basis. So therein, there is an interesting uh, sort of meeting of the world of consciousness and the unconscious, uh, really moment by moment by moment. Yeah. I did want to ask you about something I heard you say, which was our culture is an adolescent culture. What did you mean mm -hmm. by that? Well, look, first of all, we equate being a grown-up with um, having a big body and big roles in life. You know, you leave your parents, you step out into the world, you get a job, you maybe create a relationship, you maybe even produce children, or you, 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 you develop a, a world, you own your own home, you drive your own car, whatever, whatever the outer circumstances are. That does not make an adult. 
um, there's actually a chapter in the book about it's time to grow up. And, mm-hmm. and what does growing up means? I think growing up means I really have to not only become conscious of, but accept responsibility for the fact that I am accountable for my life, for my sense of satisfaction, for my purpose, for my choices. Uh, if there's one word that runs through the book, and I don't use it often, it's, it's the word accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of our journeys, all of our systems, civic, political, you know, religious, ethical, etc., all of them consider us accountable for the life we've lived, even though we've had maybe some hard times hit us. We're accountable. And, and becoming an adult means you, you have to deal with what is difficult for you, and you have to exercise as much uh, freedom of choice as you can manage in the face of the circumstances of the outer and inner world. Now, when you look at popular culture and you realize that the typical rites of passage for men and for women have really disappeared, what we have is an extended adolescence, uh, an adolescence fueled often by drugs and alcohol, by video games and, and so forth. And, and, you know, nothing that really helps sharply define a, a person and allow him or her to to begin to draw upon inner resources. So often in the therapeutic world, you know, adolescence, which used to be (laughs) roughly the teenage years, today we talk about it as between, say, 10 and 28, you know. It's It's extended in both directions. And when you think about adolescent behavior, what do you think of? You think of it as being impulsive, lacking patience, easily excitable, Easily distractible, moving from one sensation to another sensation, uh, incapable of really thoughtful, rational evaluation of issues, but responding often out of complexes and out of emotional conditioning, and, and often interested in superficial things. And then when you put all that together, you think, well, you know, that describes modern American um, popular culture. Yeah. You know? I mean, where, where is the depth of discussion, you know? We, we have a reality show president, for example. We have a bunch of clowns in public office. Um, we, we have people who respond to slogans that are emotionally charged, and, and very few people sit down and really sort of work through anything. So it, it is an adolescent culture, you know? And just aging does not produce adulthood. I know 50, 60, 70-year-old children, uh, psychologically speaking, mm-hmm. who have avoided as much responsibility as possible, remain captive to their adaptations in life, and um, pretty much go where the social pressures take them. And and when you think about that, it's pretty scary because, again, if it is true, as I believe it is, what I'm calling the soul is the organ of meaning in us. Those are not meaningful lives. Those, those are lives of, of social adaptation. And it's almost as if, you know, I was here, I occupied a big body, I played big roles, and then I died without ever really knowing who I was, why I was here, and in service to what. And that's more common than, than we would think. Mm-hmm. And so why should we grow up? Why should we 
take responsibility for things and stop blaming other people for everything? I mean, wh why not live a hedonistic lifestyle? Well, for one thing, the world needs grown-ups. You know, it's like the rites of passage of traditional cultures and minding, mindful here of the fact that lifespan was far shorter. So <laughs> puberty was often the midlife process, right? Yeah. And the in the ancient world, you know, average length of life for people statistically would have been in the 20s and so forth. It was only 40 statistically at, in 1900 in North America. In other words, uh, 40 years old, or sorry, 47, I, I misspoke. It was 47 in 1900. Now it's virtually double that. And the world needs adults. And the rites of passage were to wean children and to sharply divide them from the dependencies of the hearth to step into adult roles with, with training as adults, who our gods are, how you function in this culture in terms of, of agriculture or fishing or hunting or, ch or child welfare or whatever the functions may be. And here are the rights, duties, and expectations of, of adulthood in our particular tribe. You take that away and we send kids off to college or the army or whatever and say, you know, just do this. Don't think much about it. Just do this. And maybe pick up some computer skills along the way. And that's supposed to produce an adult. It doesn't. It doesn't. So, you know, the, that's why the adulthood often is a project of the second half of life where we grow into those accountabilities, into those responsibilities. And, and often that happens because, frankly, the consequences have piled up to the point that we have to start facing something that we hadn't faced before. And, and you know, some people can put that off their entire life and have lived lives of basically conditioned responses. You know, it's nothing new. It's just increased with the absence of maturing processes in, in the culture. And in a life of hedonism, is certainly attractive, but a life of hedonism is also a form of hell because, you know, whatever is pleasurable at this moment will not be in the next moment, which is why you have to either move on continuously, become a psychological nomad, or you become an addict in which you have to increase the sensations. Each way you're, you become hooked by the need for escalation. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with pleasure when it's a byproduct of being in right relationship to your own soul and to nature and so forth. It's, a, it's really a byproduct. It's the same with happiness. I have a chapter in the book in which I'm saying it's not about happiness, it's about meaning. Yeah. Happiness is not a permanent state. It's transient. If you're really thirsty in the desert, a glass of water will make you happy for the moment. And, and too much water will drown you. So it's, it's contextual. It's a byproduct, and it's momentary, and it's wonderful when you feel the moments of happiness. But it's in, in the long run, search for happiness in a kind of mindless way is addictive and trivializing and ultimately elusive. And, and that's why, in, in some way, the jaded life of those who have excess privilege is, you know, the stuff of bad novels and bad movies because it leads to emptiness, yeah. not to fulfillment. Yeah. And, and only that which is meaningful. And what is meaningful is often found in areas that are uncomfortable. I do not find it comfortable to be a therapist. You know, why would I want to spend my time with people suffering? That's not a comfortable experience from the standpoint of hedonism. But I find it profoundly meaningful to be part of people's journey. And I, I can't imagine a, a better kind of conversation to have.
because in a, in a certain way it, it's a conversation that deepens both of us and um, leads us both to ask questions that really need to be asked in our lives. Yeah, and toward the end of the book, chapter 19 is called Construct a Mature Spirituality. Spirituality is a kind of slippery term, but it's like what really engages your spirit. And and many people historically found it in institutional religion. Fewer and fewer people do. Um, and and many of the you know best-selling religious alternatives out there are those which, on the one hand, infantilize people and evoke the negative parent complexes and make them feel guilty and afraid and inadequate, and I think are spiritually and psychologically um, deleterious to their life and well-being, or those that promise you know easy rewards and sort of getting right with the big guy upstairs, and you know your life's going to be full of health and happiness and material blessings. You know, and all of those ultimately, I think, infantilize people and are superficial. Uh, Real life involves conflict and suffering and ends in death. So it's like, you know, let's start from that premise and see what's the most constructive uh, way you can work at these things. And then to recognize the important thing here is, all right, what engages my spirit? You know, and and sometimes it's working with people. Sometimes it's your your intellectual considerations, your own intellectual development. Sometimes it's the work of your hands. It's whatever that really moves and touches you, uh, engages your spirit. And your spirituality is not a single thing. And and true spirituality often takes us deeper than that which is comfortable. True spirituality is something that. Um, I think asks us to uh, to embrace ambiguity and uncertainty rather than resolve it. Mm-hmm. True spirituality, in a way, respects the mystery and allows it to be mysterious. Because any time you have a psychology or a religion that sort of has figured it out and wrapped it up in a package, it's really delusional. Because that's people enchanted by and captivated by their own uh, ego uh, constructs and and are are you know bewitched by their own construction rather than allowing in some way the mystery to be the mystery now when i was young as a child and a young person going off to college i really thought that if i read enough books or met the right people or found the right teachers i i sort of figure out what life was about and and that's kind of the delusion of a youth you know and and today I'm happy or willing to live, let's put it that way, with uncertainty and ambiguity, because that's what gives you your journey. You know, today's answer, you'll outlive tomorrow. When you get better questions, better instruments, you'll have better questions. And so the, the, the journey of, of your life is, is really always swathed in mystery. You know, Jung, Jung's definition of life was very simple. He said once in a letter, Life is a short pause between two great mysteries. And that's a pretty good definition. And I think the, the, the key is to make that pause as luminous as we can in the short time that we're here. In the afterword of the book, you say, each of us has to make the journey on our own and by our own lights. But there are many, sometimes invisible, fine companions on that road a worthy collection of thoughtful souls such as yourself, so you are not alone. Thank you, Dr. Hollis. My privilege, Lauren. Thank you. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information on what was discussed here today. 
There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your shows. I've created a new YouTube channel where I've been streaming a live vlog several times a week. If you're interested in watching, please subscribe to the channel. It's free. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook for daily updates. Links to all of my social media accounts can be found on speakingofjung.com. The next episode of the podcast will be recorded on April 14th, 2018, when I welcome Jungian analyst Dr. Pamela Power to discuss her recent presentation, The Paradox of Greed. So with special thanks to Lindsay Kennedy and Tammy Simon at Sounds True, and to Daryl Sharp at Inner City Books, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>